Great to be with you tonight. Lizzie, did they welcome you? Did they pray for you? You did. Okay, great. Sorry, I had a, something to keep my eye on, um, and uh, I'm afraid I'm really glad they did that, and it really is great to welcome you. Um, and it's great to have the rest of you. I want you to just ask this question for a moment. What do you turn to when you really need someone to change in a significant way? Especially if they're causing you pain. What tools of change do you turn to when you need someone to change, especially if they are causing you pain? What are you going to look to? Because that pain ultimately is rooted in some kind of wrongdoing. And eventually the Bible calls that evil. And we're in a series that is looking at overcoming evil. Bevan introduced it and we're in Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to pick us up, but I, I want us to remember the context the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has been shared how God has sought to overcome evil in our lives through the power of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that gives us peace with God. We get to stand having access to God and God's love literally establishes us in a point where nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because of the grace of God that he invested in us. And so it's literally God's love and grace that gets drawn on and accessed by our faith. And then this chapter begins, and by the way, it's not the first chapter of application, but he is rolling out. So Romans chapter 5, he deals with the application of a change of emotional condition, your affective life. And that you move from this place of anxiety and fear to a place of peace and hope and joy in the midst of suffering and love being poured into your heart. That's the first application of the gospel. It changes you on the inside. <laughs> and you begin to produce a different kind of emotional outcome because of the gospel. And the gospel isn't emotions. It's rooted in a historical action of the person of Jesus. But its first fruit is Something shifts inside of you. You get peace and joy and love and hope in the midst of suffering and difficulty. And then the next thing is that your thinking shifts. You see, you wrestle with your actions, your obedience, but your thinking shifts. And so the, another big therefore is in Romans chapter 8. That you have to start thinking about yourself as someone who's no longer living under condemnation. You're not under judgment. God is not mad with you anymore. And as your thinking literally recalibrates, you get to the point where this love has got a stubborn and firm hold on you. And then Paul begins to explain, because it was absolutely crucial in his context, how this intersects between the nations and the nation of Israel. And then we come to Romans chapter 12, and he talks about, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, brothers, sisters, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Jesus offered himself, literally, as a living sacrifice unto death for you. 
Now you, as it were, do the same. He had one life. He gave it for you. But you've got one life. And he calls you to give it back to him. As a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship. It's the most spiritual thing you can do. Is to give your body to God. <laughs> so you've dealt with your heart. Your emotions. You've dealt with your mind. And your thoughts. And your imagination. And your creativity. And your reasons. And you've dealt with your body and its actions. But how do you deal with evil? Romans 12 verse 9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. First point, how do you deal with it? Hate it. Don't recalibrate it. Don't redefine it. It's not okay. And by the way, forgiveness is not saying of something that was wrong, I've got to pretend it's fine. That's not forgiveness. You only have to forgive something because it is wrong. And because the action is detestable whether done by you or by somebody else. It's not okay. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. And so we've looked at some of this stuff. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fire serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And then this is where my part of the text picks up. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. And don't Repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay. That comes from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Says the Lord, on the contrary. Yeah, we have a quote from Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. We'll have to look at that, won't we? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Many of us have tools in which we want to change the way people, we want to change people, we want to change others. This passage is giving us tools to change ourselves first. I mean, and it's giving us, this whole book is giving us tools to change ourselves first. To change our emotions, to change our thoughts, to change our actions. But what do we do and what tools are at our disposal when we want and desperately want to see other people change? Our nation is in a place that wants to see change. And people are stirring up a whole host of emotions. And they have very little to do with love and peace and joy. 
as people stirring, longing to see real change. And the more that that change narrative multiplies, the less the nation changes. The more we just become more and more angry. The more we retaliate. The more pain we multiply. Over the last little while, we've seen at least six elements of real love. Remember, love must be for real. It's got to be authentic. It's got to be genuine. It's got to be the mint, the real deal. Six elements have been sincerity, discernment, real affection. You've got to, you've got to actually learn to like people. <laughs> you know, it's rubbish, by the way, to say, oh, you know, I'm a Christian. I know I have to love people, but I don't have to like them. Read your Bible. That's just a cop-out. If you can't look at someone with genuine love, you don't like their actions, but develop from the heart a response that is warm, you're just not doing the business. And then honor them. And stir up your passion. And as God, uh, Josh told us last week, you've got, to, you've got to find your grit in this. You've got to go the distance. So tonight there's six more elements that we positively embrace in order to overcome evil, and then we're going to look at this issue of retaliation and revenge. And how do we put coals on someone's head, and why? Why would you want to put, you know, I know some people's hairstyle looks like it's happened already, but, but you know, what's this picture, burning coals? I didn't point to anyone. So, six more elements. The first, and there's a spirit of generosity that kind of overshadows all of them. And in a sense, you overcome evil with this generous, abundant attitude as you come into this space. And one of them is just generous sharing. You get to share and give away your stuff. You see, economics forms such a significant part of the agenda of evil. That until you get to break the power of the need to own and have and control stuff, and you will not share what you have with others, you're actually part of the problem. And so unlocking good and opposing evil has to deal with your attachment to material goods and to your money and cash in the bank and the things that you say, this is mine. Share. Especially with God's people, but actually with anyone. You know, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he wasn't part of God's people. And yet he was commended for sharing. You know, we've got to deal with fear. Because it's fear that underlies evil. You, you, you look at cruelty. You look at the way... Egypt was oppressing Israel in the beginning of Exodus. And that horrific cruelty that they, they were using to exploit for economic advantage. And what was behind that was fear. And when we don't share, it's most often driven not by common sense, but by fear. 
You see, what we don't understand is a picture the Bible is full of. So when we share, we sow seed. When we keep our stuff, we are not sowing seed. Now, if you're a farmer and you want to harvest, so just remember, this is a Bible that was in farming days. If you want to harvest, there's one thing you've got to do. You've got to take your seed and apparently waste it. You could keep it all and, and live off it and live off less and less and less. But that's an, a poverty mindset. What you've got to get is an abundance mindset. That God has made the world to multiply things. And when I hold on to things, they get less. And when I sow them, they can multiply. And the temptation is we get to think about that you know, we purely th we think, okay, that's good enough for biology, but economy? I promise you, that's how God's economy works. Sow and multiply the resources God has given you. And so, both in the poverty mindset, I won't have enough, or in the greed, I need more, both are driven by fear and not faith. And when you share, you kick the devil in the teeth and you overcome that spirit of fear and you multiply faith. Generous sharing. Man, I can't tell you just that one principle, what difference it would make on planet Earth. And then generous hospitality. Practice hospitality. Actually, the word is much more intentional. Although I'm really glad it says practice hospitality. Some of the disasters we've had in trying to show hospitality to people just means if we practice, you can try again, you know. But it's actually more intentional. The word is actually like pursue hospitality. In other words, don't just think that you know, you're going to look, help look after someone or, or give a meal or give someone a place to stay. If it's really a problem, why don't you ask? Are you okay? Do you have a meal? Where are you sleeping tonight? Pursue the actions of hospitality. Sometimes we just don't want to know. Now, our kids think we take this too far sometimes, and they're kind of wondering who all is living in our house. And I, I have had several, sorry, Lizzie, this is not just you. Um, <laughs> There's, there's many people who've, many, many people who've lived in our home as we have pursued hospitality. And it's not always easy. I remember on one occasion we were planning a church and it was, it was very tough financially. Tough on us and um, it, it was a tough time. But it was also tough on, an, on another family in our church. The wife had just recently come to faith. The man was not yet a full believer. He had had a religious background. And through, as he was being drawn to faith, he got drawn in by a so-called Christian businessman and then had completely schneid. And you can check the spelling on that somewhere else. But he was taken to the cleaners by these Christian businessmen. And he lost everything. I mean everything. His house, his car, the furniture, and he still owed a bunch more. 
And his family were going to be split up and live here, there, and everywhere when, when he was going to go and work on a roadside crew because that's the only place he could find a job because he was completely blacklisted. And as we saw, this family hit literally the bottom. How do you pastor them? And so we wrestled with this. And Cindy and I prayed, and then I went to go see them. And I said, listen, I mean, we, we, had, we were a family of five. We had a small three-bedroomed house. But from the book of Ruth, changing the word slightly, we simply said, our home will be your home. Our food will be your food. And we'll trust God together. And <laughs> they stayed for about three or four months. And I, it was tough. It was tough in a, a dozen different ways. It was tough financially. But you know what? Pe news got out. And, and the blessing that started to flow in that space. People who weren't even Christians were coming to our house and dropping off food. I remember late, late one night coming home to our house. It was late. I'd been out on ministry. I was tired. And I walked into a three-bedroomed house where nine people were already fast asleep. The lounge was pretty much the only room. I didn't have someone in it. And I was a little bit too G'd up from my own evening to just go drop into bed and fall asleep. As I walked into that lounge, I honestly felt as though I was on holy ground. That this house felt more like church than many Sundays because this worship felt so real. And this faith felt like it had hands and feet. And I remember Worshipping and weeping on my lounge floor. Giving God thanks for the privilege of sharing and pursuing hospitality. Hebrews 13 verse 1 and 2 says you want to do this because you may not even know that you somehow in a crazy way could entertain angels. Wow. Number three, we want to be generous in our blessing. Listen, we're so quick to criticize. At least I was at 12 o'clock today, you know, at half time. My goodness. I found it very hard not to criticize. We're so quick to find fault. Will we learn to become quick to bless? Generous in our blessing. Generous in the way. And, and we learn to fight our fight in the opposite spirit. Everybody else uses condemnation and judgment and guilt. Will we speak life and blessing and help people change? Because we call up that which is truly good. Bless. Don't curse. And, and by the way, just an experiment. I know that we get to say from Scripture, the Lord bless you and keep you. 
make His face to shine upon you. We speak the blessing of God over others. Try not pray this when you're praying for someone. Lord, bless them. Look them in the eye and say, the Lord bless you. The Lord keep you, Fred. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Stop closing your eye to the people you're trying to bless. That's not the language of Scripture. The language of Scripture is to bless them. So don't just say, oh Lord, bless them. You bless them. The Lord bless you. And sometimes it's also appropriate in Scripture and used this way. I bless you in the name of the Lord. I speak my blessing over you. So just experiment with that for a while. Stop shutting off and saying, Lord, bless them. You bless them. Or look them in the eye and bless them. And then generous blessing, generous empathy. You get to rejoice with those who rejoice. You get to mourn with those who mourn. Your heart is no longer just open to God in which those emotions that were so dark and oppressive are being changed by that which now lifts you up. But you are able to enter into the emotional space of others. You're able to understand what's going on inside of their lives. You know what? If it's awesome, then it's awesome. And it's part of your joy to celebrate with them. It's generous empathy. And if it's sorrow and it's grief, then enter into the grief that they face. I, I can't tell you what a sacred privilege this is as a pastor. But it shouldn't just be mine because it's actually the privilege of a believer. And then generous harmony. Find the same mind. And this will take generosity of spirit. Where you actively look. Not to kind of find the fault and the disagreements. But where you, in your thinking, look with a generous attitude to having the same mind. Work on your thinking. And then lastly, generous humility. These are the things that are being... Added in. In my BC days, in other words, before Cindy, I was a, a, a youth leader. And um, I was on a camp and single, and there were a couple of attractive girls there. And my senior pastor, I was the youth pastor, and my senior pastor was also on the camp. And um, we used to call it spading. I was spading this one girl. And I was trying to explain to her um, I was trying to explain to her that it would be, it was a sacrifice for me to let her fetch my food. Um, in that, the Bible's very clear that it's more blessed to give than to receive, and that serving is regarded as far more godly than being served. So I would sacrifice the virtue and allow her the privilege of serving me by fetching my food. And, and she couldn't quite get around the logic, although she did discern the spirit thereof. So she thought I was full of whatever. And as this debate was going on, I didn't notice, but my pastor walked past the queue and he went to the thing and he got a plate full of food 
And then he came and he walked up to me, the senior pastor, like 20, 30 years my senior, and walked up and said, oh, Craig, thank you for the privilege of serving you. (laughs) (sighs) Don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited. There's so much positive stuff. So much you can embrace. It's such a generous spirit to overcome evil. Fill up your bag with God's good seed and sow it like crazy. It will overcome. But what about when it doesn't work and people stay evil? The passage deals with that. You don't repay them evil for evil. You keep on doing what is right as much as possible in the eyes of others. In other words, take into account even their understanding of what would be right. And try. Now sometimes their version of right is just wrong and you can't go there. But if it's possible, don't cause needless offense. Don't put stumbling blocks in their way. This is what you want to do. You want to change the way people change. And so don't give in to the desire for revenge. Listen, you've heard me say this in other contexts, but the only way you break the power of an offense against you, the only way you break the power of an offense against you is by... Forgiving it. No other way. No other way you break the power of an offense against you in Scripture. Because by the measure you use, so you too will be measured. Which means God alone has the power to punish sin. Because the measure that he uses will be used against him. And without sin, he will not suffer. So we have to renounce this revenge, this retaliation. And we know, you've seen it in the movies and whatever else. Retaliation only perpetuates and feeds a cycle of increased harm and chaos and evil. And so there isn't a retaliation. And it's crazy. The book of Esther, the bad guy, Haman, is an Agagite. Now you all know who Agag was. No, you don't. Agag lived 500 years before Haman. And he was king of the Amalekites. And Saul allowed a survivor, King Agag. And a hatred was nursed by Agag's line all the way down to Haman. And so... In a foreign country, when Israel had been defeated by war and carried into captivity, he thought, finally, after 500 years, I can destroy this people. That's what you call holding a grudge. And by the way, Haman died in the story. Feuds 
retaliation, revenge. Don't fix things. Forgiveness fixes things. Now, God is just. He will balance the books. Sin, listen to me, these words are chosen very carefully, will be paid for. And God has made a way for sin to be paid for. But you have to trust Him. You have to trust that when God punished sin in the person of Jesus, in His body, on the cross, God was dealing with sin once and for all. Now, we believe in that when we say, Jesus, I put my trust in you. Thank you for dying for my sin. I believe in you. But do you believe it in regard to the people who have sinned against you? Because the legal basis of all forgiveness of sin is the death of Jesus on the cross. Sin will be paid for. Will you let Jesus pay for the sins committed against you? Or will you insist that the offender themselves must pay? Sin will be paid for. God is just. God is just. He's a God of justice. He has a throne of grace, Hebrews 4, but Hebrews 1, he has a scepter of justice. Same book of the Bible. Throne of grace, scepter of justice. Grace and justice held together by our God. Now, if when you bless and don't curse, if when you love and don't retaliate, and you still don't trigger a change of heart in the person who is sinning against you, you leave it with God. Why? Because up to now, your actions have made room for God's grace. That's why you've filled your bag with 12 different attributes and characteristics and responses, at least about sincere love. But they didn't repent. You made room for God's grace. But when you step back, you now make room for God's wrath. And that's not because that's what you want to see. But because for your own protection, you dare not to choose your own wrath. It will destroy you, not them. And so Paul backs us up with a proverb from Solomon. Proverbs 25, verse 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will fry his brain. You will freak his being. The idea is that his conscience will become so hot. It's like his, his head can't bear the intensity of what you've put on him. That's the metaphor that is in this place. That you are awakening a kind of attempt at rational processing that simply can't do it. Because the rational process says sin retaliation. And what you've got is sin grace. And you fry his brain. You freak his being. You cook his conscience. Whatever you want to call it. You're shifting how that person has to process what's going on. And so we see this in the Apostle Paul, for example. 
He tells us in Acts chapter 26. I'll just need to read it from there. When he's doing his defense before a king called Agrippa. He says this about his work before he became a Christian and how it happened. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints, the holy people. I put the saints, the holy people, the sinless ones in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And many a time I went from synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. And in my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. And on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the, of the chief priests. And about noon, O king, I was on the road and I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun Blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then a little line that Paul includes in the conversation that, interesting, we only get a summary of in Acts chapter 9, which we think is the full description, but this is a more complete one. Jesus also says to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Hard for you to kick against the goats. What's, what's a goat? It's when they were training an animal. They would take wood and then they would embed sharp objects on it, in it. So when they, for example, were training an ox to take a yoke and then have the wagon or the plow behind it. And what would happen is this young ox would just start kicking. But if there were sharp objects, quickly the pain of kicking against the restraint would cause the ox to walk within the path of the goad. What were the goads of Jesus around the life of Paul that caused him pain? I believe it was the godly responses of the people he persecuted. And so when he was at Stephen's death, and we read in Acts chapter 8, sorry, Acts chapter 7, in verse 60, that Stephen's literally been crushed by rocks. And Saul is standing there giving approval to this man's murder. He hears his dying prayer. Lord, do not count this sin against them. He chooses forgiveness like Jesus. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But he, he uses a slightly different word. Instead of using forgiveness, he says, do not the sin against them. Decades later, Paul is trying to explain the gospel to a church in Corinth. And he says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How does he describe the gospel? Not counting people's sin against them. He uses the words in a prayer of a dying man whom he hated. And it was the response of the selfless service that I believe fried his brain, opened his heart, and when Jesus appeals to him, part of that confrontation is to appeal to the things that were triggering him from the inside out. 
burning coals had done their work. And his thoughts became new. Good had overcome evil in the life of one man. Guys, I carry a burden, a longing, maybe even a calling. I believe you do too. To change the way our nation changes. And guys, don't think you're too young. Don't think you're too old. Don't think you're too male. Apparently, you know, all privilege belongs to, you know, opportunity belongs to female. Don't think you're too female. Because apparently the inverse might be true. We can all find any excuse. No, no, no. It really does start with us. It starts with a new generation that has the faith to follow the way of Jesus. This is the way of the cross. To refuse revenge, to choose generosity, welcome, openness, blessing, empathy, harmony, humility. It is the way of Jesus. And it's the way you'll help people really change. Just throw away all other tools of change. All shame, all condemnation, all hostility, all retaliation. Just renounce it. Confess it as your sin. (laughs) Because it's your sinful response to their sin. And you'll find such freedom. And such power.